Good morning, everybody. This is going to be an interesting show, folks. I have been out of town, and uh, man, I've been trying to get a couple really cool stories uh, going, and one of them is this really, really important and exciting new housing plan for the Lower Ninth Ward. I'm I'm just amazed by it, and I think we're going to have someone uh, just in a few minutes, a couple seconds, I hope, who's going to call in and talk to us about it. But, um, you know, I've seen a couple of the stories, and I, I think I understand that there's a little bit of fuss about uh, communications issues. But, man, this is such an important development because we've been waiting for significant housing in that area for quite a time. And uh, everybody who's been down there knows that we still have stretches and stretches of undeveloped land, lots of weeds growing, and um, very sad, where there used to be this incredible community um, of folks, lots of families. Man, you could have one family with 20 homes there, you know, cousins and aunties and grandmas and so on. And um, they've been gone for so long. And with all the new folks coming into town, it has always been this kind of undertow of melancholy about the folks that have not come back. And you know what? I'll bet listening to BLK um, outside New Orleans, where some folks have landed and not been able to come back, I bet some of you are out there. I'd love to hear from you. So, you know, call in at 260-9265 as we talk about the impediments and the possibilities for people to come back. So I don't have the details on this, but as soon as we get our caller uh, in from the New Orleans Redevelopment Authority, I'm sure she's going to be able to help us out with some of that, and um, we'll we'll really explore what this means for the city. You know, there was a big article today in the New York Times. Yeah, you know, you listen to my show, so you know I read that paper pretty consistently, and um, it, it's it's about how some of the poorest areas in the country have missed out on the new recovery that's happening around the nation. And a lot of this new recovery, of course, is driven by technical stuff. And um, it's, it's, um, it's a good thing where it's happening and, and where it's not. It's, it's a really rough kind of thing. So um, we're going to sort of try to explore um, why some communities – communities are being held back. Well, I've got Reverend Calhoun on the phone. Let's let's see what uh Rev, Rev where are you calling from? Lower Ninth Ward. Oh, okay. So you're in you're right there in ground zero and That's right. um uh, uh so so Reverend, I, I I know that there's been some pushback, but uh altogether we're talking about what is I think I heard over 70 new housing units in in the area and that that's got to be a good story, huh? Uh, I think that, it, uh, from, what my, from what I've understood, is there's going to be 262 parcels of land given uh, given away. Uh, I don't. I have not been able to find uh, anyone that could tell me exactly what properties nors are given away within the community. But uh, I think that what my issues are, the the community has not had a chance to have a real meeting on the on on these issues. I understand that they put out a uh, RP, uh, RFP, RFP, yeah, request for proposals. Uh-huh. 
but uh, my concern is that that we don't seem to uh, have been properly vented throughout the neighborhood. Habitat for Humanity has a history of, uh, if you go over to, to the Musician Village and look at the housings that, that was constructed over there and how they're coming apart, uh, the Chinese drywall, uh, drywall incident that uh, Habitat for Humanity has been involved with, and now you're giving them uh, more land because they were already given some, some parcels of land before that they have not developed. So uh, I, okay, I just think uh, that the uh, Reverend had an opportunity to uh, the people that live here that want to develop property or what you know they should have been given an opportunity to participate first. Uh, I got one gentleman that he had the lot next door program. Now he don't know if uh, and he's ninety years old. He don't know if that property is going to be taken from him or, or what's going on. Okay, Let, let's do a little fact-checking here for a minute because um, I understand uh, the concern and um, I, I don't by any means know all the details yet. And uh, as I say, I think we'll hear from uh, somebody over at Nora that will fill us in a little bit. But first of all, Habitat for Humanity is one of several developers. They're not the only one. Right. That's number one. Right. Number you two, got the Chinese... other developers along with Ham- Habitat for hum- yeah. uh, Humanity. Right. Num- start looking at those developers... It may be questionable about a couple of them. Okay. Um, well, you know, developers are developers, so uh, hopefully most of them are going to work out. Number two, um, and, and I, I'm not trying to be cavalier about it. I think that there's a lot more information that um, will certainly be shared, and we'll, we'll learn a lot, a lot more as this develops. But number two, I just want to uh, say on the Chinese um, uh uh, drywall. We know that that was a problem that hit everybody in the city. That wasn't uh, that wasn't strictly a habitat for humanity issue. That was somebody every everybody was victimized by that, and that was one of the saddest incidents in in American uh, economic history. And I think that it was a really good example of why the whole move of our um, manufacturing offshore has been a terrible thing for our country on many, many levels. And and, uh, I have to admit, I think that Bernie Sanders has gotten that right, that, you know, there's there's some guys up at the top of these corporations who are just trying to make their stocks look good. And the the cheaper they get their stuff made and the higher they charge for it, the better off they are. And then they, they just... Uh, allowed um, uh, some some bad practices, some bad quality uh, merchandise to be produced and distributed without being more careful about it. So that's something that that we we all got hit by. That was that was a bad deal, but that's something that is um, economy wide practically, well, not just in terms of drywall, but other you know. things. There now they're talking about some of that flooring that uh, you know lumber's uh, uh, what is it uh, lumber liquidators. Yeah, there's another one. I mean, it's it, the problem is a lack of quality control of products that are being. Uh, manufactured offshore, brought back into this country, sold as if they're American products when when they're not. They're made by people who are getting paid much less money than our workers were paid. It's it's a it's not it's not a pretty picture. And it's not a, a pretty part of America. It may be a problem, but again, your responsibility and your accountability in that should be you should be held hold, held accountable for those type things. No, you're right. That's true. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, and that's the lacking that I see uh, with uh, some of these organizations. And I know you're familiar with Perez and the development that they're doing out by your home. So, uh, 
Uh, well, I don't know what they're doing, frankly. I haven't heard well, of, uh, anything in a long time. Are they doing anything? I'm not sure anything is happening there. Yeah. But but what I'm saying here is that uh, that we're at a stage now that uh, so many things are being ran, are being done, and the community has no knowledge or input into what's going on. We get meetings. When they have meetings now, it's about the announcement of the project. It's no longer about coming to the community sitting down with the community and finding out what's going on, uh, making the community aware. That's one reason that we are sitting down now and trying to put a community meeting together to speak to these issues. Oh, good. Because so, that was what I was about to say, is that obviously in these situations, as you know, as I know, as we all know, it's really it's a two-way street. It's not just up to whoever is developing the program. It really is a part of the community's um, uh, I don't want to say responsibility, but it, it's it, the only way to make sure that we we hear from uh, the community is if the community speaks up and does get engaged and involved. So uh, I well, get the again, impression the from... The community has to be informed of what's going on. And again, most of the time it, it comes to us after it has already been uh, written in stone, so to speak. So uh, that's one of the issues that I'm having is that when, uh, well, not when, but we will have a community meeting and inviting the residents of this area. Number one, we need to identify what properties, what type of development. I know I don't want any type of uh, structure just being put next to my home. So, uh, is that what? The, tell me what you think the the primary uh, concerns are. Is it the type of of uh, structure? Or is it? What one of the uh, aside from not knowing exactly what it is, the quality of the construction, uh, the quality of the construction, sure. All right, yeah. uh, uh, and then I need to know when they're talking about developing this neighborhood, what are what are we developing? I mean, we have uh, Conrad Bailey, who fathers. When I go back to this neighborhood, and as you know, I grew up here. So when I look back and talk about economic development and and uh, all that for this community. I don't feel that the community should be left out. If uh, uh, we, I've been uh, trying to get a piece of property from the city of New Orleans now for the last 10, 15 years and can't get it. And hey, hey Reverend. telling me that the property is going to go into a developer. For, I, I just have issues with that. I, I, I totally understand. Listen, let, do me a favor. Can I um, uh, can I ask you to call me back in just a couple minutes? Yes. I've yes, got yes, somebody from Nora on yeah, the phone finally, that. and I, I want to take them. And then after we hear from her, let, let's talk again. Okay, call me back in. All right. All right. Then. Okay. Uh, Mayor Beth. Yes, ma'am. Hi. How I, I, are you? You know, I'm I'm so crazy. I was out of town, and my brain was not with me when I was thinking when I forgot to call you directly and say, Mary Beth. Um, help me out here. I was trying to get somebody to come on and talk about this. You know, it, it's it's really, I, I don't know what happened with this as, as to why the community is all riled up about not being included. But let's start, I want to start with the, the good part of this story because it's such a big development. And I've been waiting for years to hear what is going to happen uh, with all that property in the Lower Ninth Ward, when are we going to see housing? And then this big story comes out. I think it's phenomenal and it's good news. Let's deal with that first, and then we'll unpack the problems that um, may or may have happened uh, in in terms of the community's concerns about being involved. Tell me, give me the basics on the project. How many units of housing? 
um, who are the developers, what part of the city is being developed. Um, I think we need to address Reverend Calhoun's question about people who have lot next door programs. I, I doubt they're threatened by this in any way, but let's let's uh, straighten that out. But t- just give me the, the basics on this, because this is a big deal, right? Um, it's a, a very exciting deal. We were pleased to announce um, that uh, after our Board of Commissioners meeting on Monday night when they voted to approve five de- uh, development um, organizations who will then work with New Orleans Redevelopment Authority in purchasing properties that were identified by us through careful consideration and with the help of the reinvestment fund, a national firm, and um, in taking into consideration what's happening right now in the Lower Ninth Ward with the new school, the um, successful elementary school, the new CVS, the Family Dollar Store, all coming online, and our commercial corridor gap financing program that we have that's encouraging redevelopment along North Claiborne Avenue and St. Claude Avenue. So we identified um, over 250 properties. And oh, wow, our... that's even bigger than I thought. You see, I was out of town, yeah. so I didn't see all the details. Well, 250, not, that's fab. But not all the properties were um, in- included in proposals. So we did identify oh, five see. partners. Ten proposals were submitted, and through a careful um, process, five were chosen to move forward, put forward before the Board of Commissioners to approve those uh, proposals. So, um, the, and I can say this, that those proposals were evaluated based on the developer's prior experience, their financial models that they put forth in their proposals, urban design, sustainability, diversibility, and capacity building. Plus, they had to show that they had um, a marketing plan and disposition strategy that they would use once they acquired the property and then were required to build on that property. So that's um, that's where we are. I would like to say this, Jean. We did have um, a, a meeting, and some members of the community did attend that meeting, and that was back in November. Um, so we did have an information session. But because this involves federal funding, there are steps that we have to go through um, oh, I see. through federal regulation. And so now that we've identified the five uh, developers, then there will be um, more community engagement as they um, determine which lots they would like to try and acquire. And so it was on. federal issues, uh, federal uh, re- regulations that were involved also. I get it. That's okay. correct. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I figured it had to be something like that because I, I don't think Nora has a track record of, of not uh, doing its job uh, in, in communicating with folks. Um, so I, I was kind well, of surprised at that. we tried very hard to take into um, consideration from the lot next door to rain gardens to uh, commercial um, development that we foster affordable housing opportunities to really reach out to the uh, communities, especially those directly affected and involved, so that they know what we're trying to accomplish and we have their thoughts and feelings taken into consideration. But um, so, you know, there was a... Uh, there was an information meeting that was held, I believe the date uh, was November hmm, 15th, I believe, or somewhere in that vicinity. And there were some members of the community who did attend. So let's go back. Let's, let's uh, um, uh, pick, pick some of this uh, apart. So sure. um, 
Uh, you said that there were, it sounds like you had some very rigorous uh, combination of standards that uh, you were judging your developers by and that you were choosing the properties by. Let's, let's deal first of all with the property selection. Give me some idea of some of the criteria that were used for the property selection. Well, the property selection, first of all, these properties are properties that are in Nora's inventory that were... Uh, that now, when you say in Nora's inventory, let's just tell people what that means. Um, Following Katrina, a number of the road home properties five years after Katrina were transferred to the Nora inventory, which means that um, those properties um, came to us from the road home program. Some of the properties did come through us through other strategic acquisitions. So the properties that were taken into consideration for development through this initiative are not city-owned properties. Okay. That's that's separate. Um, like you see the public um, uh, auctions that are taking place by the city on tax adjudicated properties. Right. Yeah. Those are not a part of our inventory. So there these was. were properties, if it was part of the road home, these right. were properties that people actually sold to the state that's correct. way back after the storm. And then you've had them available. And, um, and, and those are exactly the properties we were all hoping to see developed. Yes, and I had my original number wrong. We selected 229 vacant properties to okay. put forth through uh -huh. this program. Where, where are most of them? I can tell you the exact um, um, uh, Parameters. borders, if you will. Yeah, sure. um, they're within the boundaries of the Industrial Canal, mm -hmm. North Galvez Street, St. Mm -hmm. Claude Avenue, and the St. Bernard Parish Line. Okay. They do not cross over... Um, St. Claude Avenue to the Holy Cross side. I figured that, yeah. If you will. Um, so and there's a lot of development we, over we there. We took into careful consideration after consulting with the national firm um, the burgeoning growth in the neighborhood, including, like I said, the recent opening of um, the Sanchez Community Center, which is a beautiful uh, Fabulous. I've used it several place. times for community meetings. I'm telling you. Yeah. I went in there for a meeting one day, and I was blown away by those facilities. I know. Me too. Yeah, what a gift to the Lower Ninth Ward that community center is. Really? Um, the, you know, there's the soon-to-be-open CVS Pharmacy and Family Dollar Store, both coming online. The new um, high school. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the very successful uh, Dr. King Charter School, the elementary school there at the corner of Caffin and Claiborne. Fabulous example of how the community really um, rose to the challenge and made sure that it, it opened again and that uh, it got what it needed to uh, be improved and, and, and open. So it, it, that's a great example of a, you might say, a public-private partnership where the, the neighbors correct. really made it happen. Yep. And, you know, we, we had um, through the NSP2 program that went from 2010 to just the end of last year, 2015, we had uh, built 463 affordable housing units across the city in seven targeted neighborhoods, including 54 in the Lower Ninth Ward, some in the Make It Right um, neighborhood with Make It Right and some in court, uh, in partnership with um, NINA, Ninth Ward Empowerment um, Neighborhood uh -huh, Association. Uh -huh. So that's a lot of housing. And, um, okay, so... Tell me this. Uh, this took a while to put together, didn't it? I mean, this yes. was a lot of work involved in this. Explain just a little bit of the process involved, because I know I was one of the people who kept saying, "What's happening in the Ninth Ward?" And I, I you know, and, and, and I just, I had this feeling that there was a lot of work being done, but I didn't know what. So, what does it take to get a project like this off the ground? Well, you have to be very um, uh, judicious and careful in 
the locations of uh, what you're trying to make available. You have to be realistic in determining just what the demand looks like in a neighborhood, not just the Lower Ninth Ward, but any neighborhood where you're trying to create affordable housing opportunities. And um, uh, and I think just a realistic plan that took a couple of, you know, at least two years in, to put in place. It's not something that we just... Um, it took two years to do. To yeah, make possible. We, and we consulted with um, the Reinvestment Fund, a national firm that specializes in urban revitalization policy and research. And they analyzed market conditions in the Lower Ninth Ward. And uh, from that study, we determined that at this time, it looks like perhaps there could be uh, an additional 250 housing units that there would be a demand for in the lower ninth ward. So now, when you say additional, we don't want to over promise and under deliver. Right. Let me just clarify that uh, additional. When you say the additional 250, is the 229 a part of that 250? Or are you talking about yeah, 250 yeah. beyond? No, so that's it. So, that's all right. So that's your that's their that's what the real estate uh, and and neighborhood uh, urban development uh, folks are speculating there's a market for. And so they're saying if we build these houses, they will come and Hopefully. we'll get folks back. <laughs> and and wouldn't it be amazing if, if some of the folks who have not been able to come home were able to do so? So tell me about that. I would assume that there's some kind of mechanism that you guys are putting in place to try to identify those who live there, who have been gone, and many many folks who've moved on, let's be honest, you get into a new home. I mean, even during evacuation, when I was just in a place for a few months, you know, I started getting settled in a little. There was no way I wasn't coming back to New Orleans. But folks do, especially with kids, put them in school, get a job, and, and, and then, you know, you're not ready to, to move away. But what about those who really are just craving to come back? What What are we doing to help them? Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a part of the um, developers who were chosen's role will be to develop a marketing plan and disposition strategy. Um, you know, we're, we can't pretend to know all the folks who haven't been able to come back. Um, you know, I think you saw Make It Right um, try to do the same thing. But uh, we will be keenly interested in seeing of the properties that are purchase from Nora and build on just who they will draw. We're not certain. We think that it might include some new folks. And some of the um, units that will be built will be rental units, so um, not all will be available for purchase. Some of the developers want to make them available for rental purposes, so it'll be interesting to yeah, see. We need, we need rental, too, because not everybody is in a financial position to uh, buy a home, or or is ready psychologically for the uh, commitment to uh, purchasing a home. That's Having uh, owned a house for a long time, I now know why. It is a yeah. challenge. It's especially uh, um, when you have uh, all kinds of really dramatic changes going on in the community. Well, That's so correct. okay, so and then ha- what about the density of this? Is it uh, uh, are the housing sites kind of scattered around within that footprint, or are they kind of close to each other, or h- how is that going to look? Um, I can't speak to that knowledgeably uh, because the um, five developing partners will now um, enter into these purchase agreements, and it will be up to up to them through careful um, uh, negotiations with New Orleans Redevelopment Authority to identify and finally 
Um, Select which properties are yeah, actually going to develop. Yeah. So that's still in development. I don't want, I don't want to misspeak to your audience. It's I totally agree and understand. To be armed with sure. all the facts. And, well, and we, well, I, what I'd like to do is uh-huh. make um, uh, Brenda Bro possibly uh, in the very near future available to speak to you um, in more detail. And um, that would be great. Yeah, uh, Brenda's uh, uh, been involved in housing and community in the city for many, many years. So I know she uh, knows what she's talking about. And, and so she is shepherding this. This is kind of under her watch. Yeah, um, All right. she leads our real estate efforts um, for the most part, uh, okay. and um, she can be – I'm sorry that we couldn't make her available this morning. But, well, you um, know, and, 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 and to be fair to you and everybody, just so you all know, I mean, I was out of town, and I, I, I tried last week to put this together, and I couldn't quite uh, get it, and then when I came back, I kind of jumped on it, and so I didn't sure. give anybody a lot of time, in all honesty, well, so and we, just and so we you really all know. we speak to the program until – um, our board of commissioners had approved had it. Carefully see. considered sure. uh, the proposals, <clears throat> and uh, um, I mean, at least what was recommended, and took a vote on it Monday night. Well, you know, obviously we're dealing <clears throat> in the lower ninth ward with a lot of sensitivity, um, and 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 I'm actually going to go into a part of where that sensitivity came from because that that goes way back to. Uh, the immediate uh, time after the storm when um, uh, there, you know, our Urban Land Institute put out a study uh, in recommending how the city should be redeveloped and, and, and some recommendations that they had about how that should happen, quite frankly, were, were grossly misinterpreted. Not that there wasn't some underlying feelings in the city throughout on, on all sides that didn't uh, contribute to that. But in fact, there was this thought of, you know, the whole green dot psychology that um, this was uh, a plan to get rid of people. And, and really, I know a little bit more about how that went down than, than some folks. And, and uh, I think there was a lot of misinterpretation of that. So that, but that sensitivity is what underlies um, what's going on. And then there were issues in Holy Cross, as you know, with the Holy Cross site, where um, uh, I, I won't go into the details on that because that's not this, what this story is about, but that, that created sensitivities. And um, so I, I think we're just going to have to tread very, very carefully and, and, and obviously, uh, and I know that, the, that your office and the, and the mayor's engagement office and, and all the community people are going to really work at this in, in trying to open up the lines of communication <laughs> so that folks um, really do have a chance to uh, uh, be heard and, and uh, have their feelings and their concerns uh, um, ex- uh, appreciated and, and uh, brought into the process. And I know you very well, Mary. Uh, um, Beth Romig for many years, and, and you are a fair person who wants to hear from people, so I, I know that uh, this is going to get better. It's too big and too important and too positive a development to um, uh, get undermined by um, a moment of uh, the sensitivities that we know are out there. So all the luck on it, and um, I appreciate so much you making yourself available this morning. And, and as um, I mentioned earlier, we you know we had to follow some federal regulations when it came to uh, um, sharing information. We had to wait till the time was appropriate, but now those lines will be open even further. And um, I appreciate your time, and um, maybe we can visit you again real soon. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, you tell more. you tell me when you want to come on, and and uh, I will uh, make the time available for y'all. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. All okay. right. Okay. So folks, see. Um, 
you know, uh, those of you who who know me know that I'm not one to uh, sugarcoat stuff, and and uh, I can fuss as, as loud and as vigorously and as long as anybody about something. And um, I certainly will be concerned about how this goes forward, and I will um, uh, stay focused on it and and um, and help. Uh, Make sure that on our program um, we give everybody a chance to talk about it and and air the issues. But um, I, I I understand a little bit better now, having talked with Mary Beth about uh, the limitations that they were facing with the federal regulations for one, and um, really getting the approvals that they needed to actually move forward. Um, so so that said, I, I'd love to explore, and I'm going to ask Lee to try to get somebody on the phone who I know knows about this because. I'm pretty close to him. He happens to be my husband. But if if we can call um, uh, the office number, uh, Lee, uh, where you normally get me and and see if you can get uh, Mr. Tannen on the phone. I want to go back to the beginning because, you know, sometimes there's there's uh, there's a pee under the mattresses, you know, the princess the famous princess fairy tale where there is a pee way under the mattresses that um, just kept kept you know, irritating the princess. Well, sometimes there's some seed back there that just won't go away. So, you know, we still hear about, oh, they broke the levees in Betsy and, oh, they, um, you know, they busted the levee in 1922. Well, they didn't actually. That was a natural crevasse, but there was a real uh, crevasse in um, in uh, 1927, a, not a crevasse, but a, a, an explosion that should ha- should not have been done. And once that was done, then there's this constant suspicion that um, there's going to be uh, another one or that there has been one when, in, in fact, there might have been a natural breach. And I, we, we just we have lots of um, myths and, and theories that evolve um, around uh, things sometimes that that have maybe some grounding in reality, and but also are reflecting um, uh, things that we've been through, that we've been uncertain about, that we've heard about, that maybe uh, involve some misconceptions. There was a profound misconception about what the Urban Land Institute study that was done just after the storm said about how the city should come back. And it really undercut a lot of the early redevelopment of the city, and it still lingers in the hearts of folks. You know, we all know when we say green dots what that means. Green dots is a symbol of the sense that uh, white folk didn't want black folk back. Let's just nail it. Okay, that's what it was. Let those neighborhoods where black people live, don't redevelop them, let them go. That is not what that study said. But the effects of what it did say did linger on in a way that had actually two very interesting impacts, I believe. This is just my opinion now, folks. One it delayed development, but development was going to be delayed anyway because the market, as, as Mary Beth was talking about, was not there early on. It, it hopefully was going to develop, and, and the issue, of course, would be making it happen um, uh, productively, and, and that took a while. 
The second thing that happened as a result of that whole Green Dot uh, controversy is that it got all our backs up and folks said, we're coming back whether you like it or not. So folks rallied and it became a sort of, Sometimes you need an enemy to, to get you off the ground and, and, and get folks to rally and make things happen. And that, that concept of the Green Dot was the enemy. What the Green Dots was really all about, as many of us have come to learn, is about integrating green uses of land and green building in a way that accommodates development in a way that will um, not avoid completely, but mitigate the effects of the um, probable continued uh, storms that are going to come along with the global warming. That again, that's another one of those things that some people think global warming is a myth. <laughs> you know, the the, the um, global warming deniers. Um, but but the 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 issue with the with the green dots is that it, it was meant to promote the idea of having um, more green around a house, not not have a house. Okay, I'm sure I'm going to hear people who are going to disagree with this. So I'm going to take my first caller. Hi, Tim. Yes, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen, ahead. I want to make this one statement first. As a correction, you said that, uh, you know, people always assume there was a, uh, an explosion. But we it wasn't an explosion. You said it was a natural breach. A ship that came across the levee and broke the levee is not a natural breach. Which one are that you talking about? Whoa, 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 board, Tim, 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 hold on. Which year are we talking about? Katrina. Oh, see, I'm not talking about Katrina, baby. I'm going all the way back to 1922. Now, here, yeah, you're talking about the, yeah, the explosion, and then you're saying that's No, 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 keep... no, no, no. I'm not even talking about an explosion. Now, you listen for a second. You just listen for one second. So we're talking about in 1922, uh, in Poitras, Louisiana, there was a natural breach in the levee that flooded St. Bernard. Okay, now stay with me a minute now. Then in 1927, when we had the big flood coming down the river and the town fathers in Orleans said, what are we going to do to keep New Orleans from flooding? And they decided, oh, well, why don't we just go explode the levee down in St. Bernard again? That'll help. That was really, really bad science. There was no way that doing something below New Orleans was going to help keep New Orleans from flooding. Ultimately, it was a breach upriver that saved New Orleans. But in the meantime, they went ahead and exploded that damn levee, and they flooded St. Bernard again. Now, hold with me. Katrina is a whole different story. Now, you can say, you describe what you understand happened in Katrina. I know all I'm saying is that sometimes people get this history, this this myth going. And I'm also talking about Betsy. Everybody was talking about how in Betsy there was a breach and that they the, some people claimed that it was an explosion, which came from what happened in St. Bernard, but there was not an explosion. Okay, so now you tell me about Katrina. Okay, I thought you meant that Katrina was a natural breach. Yeah, no, 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 no. 
No. Okay. Because that, that's what everybody, you know, I always assume, and then they go into the explosion thing, and I have to tell people, there was a ship sitting there, broke the levee. It sat there for weeks, if not months. I have it on video. I have pictures of it. It's the first thing I saw when I came across the bridge, the Claiborne Bridge. The yeah. ship sat there. It's not a natural breach. Now, let me just it's, ask you a question about that ship, because this is something I don't know enough about myself. Was that ship supposed to have been moved and they didn't move I, it or what? I don't think the rules and regulations call for them to move them when a storm comes, but I think they may have changed those rules and regulations out of these sort of damage it could do after Katrina. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know, but I, I heard it in the news where they were talking about maybe those ships, we should think about moving those ships out of the, uh, you know, the levee right there, out of the uh, canal right yeah, there. Yeah. But anyway, the other thing I wanted to comment on yeah. is the uh, people that you say people complain about they don't want those black people back. And I agree, but it's not just that. I think they don't want that concentration of black people there. They want to integrate and mix these neighborhoods like they're doing everywhere else all over the city, and I agree with them. I think that should be done. Okay. All right. Well, that was some people. You know, there there was different people had different thoughts. I also, uh, you know, in my conspiratorial part of my heart, uh, believe that there, when they took down all the public housing, and um, to me, that was definitely, there were mixed things going on there, too. But I, I really felt that there was uh, underlying interest in reducing the number of black votes in the city. Um, you tell me I'm wrong about that. Oh, I agree with them. And I, 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 well, I'm going to get, get in trouble for saying this, but I believe that a, a lower, uh, how do I say it, a certain ignorance, with a, a certain group of black people, a lower level of consciousness that the, you can't have concentrated in one place. And once they got it, got them spread out, they're not going to let that happen again. They're going to keep these neighborhoods integrated. So, Tim, let me ask you a question. What, what part of the city do you live in? Well, I lived in the Lower Ninth Ward before Katrina, uh-huh. and but moved out before, right before Katrina. But all my family lived on that side where that bridge was. You know, they the they literally was. got their houses. Yeah. Uh, uh, wiped out uh-huh. and my, my in-laws side so I saw all that that's the first thing we did we came over and we took pictures and videos and everything how right. it was gone completely gone but now I live in Metairie okay well, but I always understood that Katrina as a matter of fact and, you know I want to bring I'm waiting for Chuck to bring this topic up <laughs> Katrina was a storm created by you know higher powers that knew that this city had to be cleaned out it was just too much ignorance concentrated in this city and, so, you know, this thing had to be cleaned out and spread out. And then once they got it, they're not going to let that happen again. Well, and and also I think that, um, I mean, there's been such an interesting thing going on in the city, as we all know right now, where we have all these young folks who learned a lot about New Orleans after the storm that they didn't know before. They There was a lot of people across America who, who didn't have a clue about the depth of our culture and while they learned about the disaster, they also learned about why it was such a, a big disaster beyond just um, the normal, um, you know, uh, hurricane or weather disaster. It was also a disaster for our culture. And that brought them in in droves. And we've had this incredible in-migration of, of young artists and creatives and techies and entrepreneurs and what have you. Um, but at the same time, the issue and the question has been, what about the folks who were here? What about our traditional community? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about all those downriver neighborhoods below Canal and, and what's been going on? I'm just curious to hear your view on that. Well, I, I kind of like what's going on. I agree. If all, these, all these people should be mixed together and learn to live together. 
I don't think there should be any class, any neighborhood should be just all black or all white or any of that. I like what's going on. I just don't like what they're doing with the prices. As a matter of fact, yesterday someone uh, highlighted on Facebook, someone's advertising a house in the Bywater for $440,000. And I immediately saw that as a gent- uh, the old gentrification trick where you, you lift the ad for way higher price, and then when you get the people you want to live there, you sell it to them for the real price. Now, you see, there's a perfect example of what I was talking about, about these you know, these interpretations that we sometimes have. I understand exactly where you're coming from, but you know what, Tim? The prices of houses in the Bywater have skyrocketed everywhere. They, I, I know that people bought houses in the 80s for maybe $40,000 that are selling for $400,000. They're selling at those prices. People are gobbling them up because you got it, you're getting people in there who can afford more. So when you do that mix, as you call it, um, you also get folks who are more endowed financially, and they gobble up the houses. And so then the real crisis becomes: where do we? How do we make sure that we also have affordable housing? I had an interesting conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who's heavily involved in the arts and education, and we were talking about things here. And she says, "Well, the one thing you've got to do something about is affordable housing." Well, yeah, I agree with that, and I don't think this should uh, allow that. To, I, I mean, are the houses really so – I can't believe that the picture of the house that I saw looked like a shack that was just redone. I can't believe it's so, really sold for that amount. Check it out. You talk to the real estate uh, brokers. You're going to hear uh, – you, you, you're going to be shocked to hear what's going on. Listen, Tim, thank you. Listen, keep calling in. I enjoyed your conversation, and you have a nuanced perspective. I've got two callers waiting on the line. Okay, thank you very thank much. Thank you right. very much. Okay, let me see. Hello, Vanessa. I've been wondering where you are and how you're doing. Hi, Jean. I'm doing fine. How are you? Uh, you know, I heard this rumor at one point talk about rumors and myths, and I knew it wasn't true, that you might possibly not be living in New Orleans forever. Mm-hmm. That's not true, right? Not true. Good. Not true. Good. <laughs> you make me feel a lot better. What you got, Vanessa? Well, here's the thing. Um, Bill, Bill Campbell contacted me about all of this housing that Habitat and these developers are going to do here in Lower Nine. And, of course, most of what I I needed to be aired out there was edited out, okay? Here's the thing. What angers us is that Nora and James Gray never, never, ever met with this community about all these developers coming in here buying up all these lots. When the Lot Next Door program went away, and I I read recently that it's come back, there were a number of people in this neighborhood that were cutting and maintaining lots next door and perpendicular to them, but they couldn't get them. So there was no effort, no outreach to the community about developers coming in here, buying up these lots. Because, you know, we were pushing the bill for the $100 lots because we had still so many people living outside this neighborhood that had lived here before, wanted to come back here. We still had people in the diaspora. So what angers us? Always we have to go back 10 years and all this federal money came, and there was no move to redevelop this neighborhood with the money that came for us. Because if it was, if it did happen, all those people that are not here now would be here right now. So 
the thing about all of it is this. Yes, we need affordable housing, but we are suffering, just like everybody else, gentrification in our neighborhood. And what's so sad about it is that you got people like my mother, who's 101 years old, that owned a home in this neighborhood forever. And because these people come in here of means and buy up this housing and put a truckload of money into it, then their taxes go up. And they can no longer afford the tax. This is a really, really critical issue. And I heard a similar story from a friend of mine who lives on Poland Avenue, who she was actually one of the early, early gentrifiers. She was a, um, a real estate broker who moved onto Poland Avenue really in the 80s. And uh, she was talking about, uh, uh, again, an older woman who lived uh, near her, her neighbor, um, who, same thing, <clears throat> as the as the um, values went up and her taxes went up, right. she couldn't afford her house anymore. You know, quite frankly, my my the assessment on my, I, I bought my house on Esplanade in 1975, and I bought my house for a fraction of what oh, yeah. it's probably worth today, and my taxes have skyrocketed. And we, we, my husband's been adding up the insurance. And by the way, yeah. that's another really unfair oh, thing yeah. because here I am. I, we chose to be on higher ground, so-called mm-hmm. higher ground in New Orleans. You know, five feet above, sea, four feet yeah. above sea level. Because it was um, higher, and yet we still have to be punished and pay these higher yeah. insurance rates, even though exactly. we tried to be judicious in choosing our, our home site. So that's not fair. And then this tax thing is not fair. Mm-hmm. There it's needs not. to be some kind of consideration of people who own their property and who don't have the means to to accomplish these higher tax rates. I, 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 have you heard anything at all about anybody talking about how to figure this out? Because, you know, we often ask the question, how do you accept these new people with their new dollars without losing the whole quality of your neighborhood and the people exactly. who were there before. And and I right. keep not hearing solutions. There and, have to be some. And we're not going to hear it, and we're never going to hear it from our councilmen. Well, now, uh, let's not talk about your councilman because uh-huh. uh, we we're, uh-huh. we uh, we we have a lot of history there, both of us. Yeah. So, but but just it's not even about the councilman. It's it's a national issue. Oh, yes. It's happening yes, it in is. every city in America. It's it's actually it's a worldwide phenomenon. It's been going on for you know uh, centuries. It, it, wherever the artists and and the creatives go, they they perk up a neighborhood. Next thing you know, the oh, prices absolutely. go up, and absolutely. next thing you know, they get pushed out too. That's the yeah. irony. It, it's not. Not only it, the it, older it folks. Angers, it angers us so much. Of course. That there, was, there was no conversation held with us. There has to be some kind of a consideration. Fighting people for 10 years. You know who we need to call? We need to get Errol Williams on the phone and say, Errol, what you doing about this? What are we going to do? Absolutely. We just, you know what? Are we just going to, you know, Lee, let's get Errol Williams on the phone if we can and see if we can see what he's thinking about in terms of the, the you know, the assessor's office and, and see what can we possibly do to uh, to develop a, a strategy for helping people who've lived in their neighborhoods forever and can't afford these increased tax assessments to uh, have some consideration so they can live out their lives in, in, in their oh, yeah. in their homes. Yeah. That, that you know, Vanessa, that's that's something we got to work on. We've we got to, to figure this out because yeah. it, it really is not fair. 
is it's totally not, not fair. How, how are you doing? Let, let me see. And, and uh, you know, haven't uh, really uh, been hearing from the from the uh, uh, Ninth Ward uh, Coalition lately. Give me some uh, update. Well, we're doing okay right now. Uh, we're involved in a campaign to reopen McDonough 19 slash Armstrong School. I've been you here. Know, yeah. As you know, we still have the one elementary school here, and it has a 600 student waiting list. 600 is going to open oh my goodness um this year but still we have children on corners catching the bus at five and six in the morning you know they're riding four hours a day outside of this community to get an education yeah. and we have a school sitting on st claus so we were able to get our school board member john brown and nolan marshall to get uh ops the opsd board to take it's the school sites down here off of the sales slash auction list for the time being. See, that goes back to what I was saying to Reverend Calhoun. I mean, it, it, you have to have aggressive community action to protect the community. That's the only way. So uh, your uh, work to do that, that's that's the kind of thing that has to happen uh, in order to hold their feet to the fire and, and get what the community needs. All the time. All the time. So Takes right every bit now, of energy we have, we're, huh, we're Vanessa? involved in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, let's stay in touch and call me back. And um, uh, uh, this is going to be, I, I, I hear people, uh, what they're saying. I do understand from Mary Beth Romick what she's saying about the federal regulations mm-hmm. yeah. that prohibited them from really engaging the community before. I think they're going to double down on that. And hopefully as it goes forward, um, there'll be a lot of uh, communication. You keep me informed, please. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Reverend Calhoun. Oh. You know what? I, Reverend, stand by. i got to take my husband. He's been sitting on the phone. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Hello? Hello? Are you still there? Robert Tannen? Maybe not. Maybe we lost him. Let me go to Reverend. Uh, Reverend Calhoun. Yeah, I don't have a problem you taking Mr. Tanner first. Well, you know something? He, he must have given up on me because I left him <laughs> hanging for so long. But uh, maybe he'll but- call back. Uh, as, as we listen to what Vanessa had to say, yeah. there has been a problem here with uh, having community involvement, be it from the schools, uh, community development, you name it. Community has not been a part. Most of the meetings actually be informational meetings to come and tell you what has already been decided. But we are planning a meeting, a community meeting concerning this issue. Hopefully we're going to try to do something within a week because I think that the community needs to know exactly what's going on. I'll tell and you what. Historically, when, we yeah. have not had that. Listen, I see he's on the hotline. I'm going to, I'm going to, he's on, my husband is now on the hotline. All but right. look, listen, uh, no, 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 hold on a second. So listen, as soon as you know, hello? Hello. No. Uh, oh, um, I'm, I'm going to hang up on Reverend in a minute because otherwise that buzz is going to get bad. But Reverend, listen, uh, keep me informed on the schedule and I'll put it out in our newsletter. Hope you heard me. Uh, Mr. Tannen. Yeah. All right. So, you know, it's interesting. So I've talked to a couple people now. and I was um, listening. And um, they, I, I didn't hear um, they, they weren't going back to that, that Green Dot story. I mean, I know for some folks it still is an issue. Maybe it's not as big an issue still as I thought it was. But, um, you know, did you, did you hear what I said about it? And is that how your interpretation or I really no, would you, like it? You, you're, you're on it was a little different than the original uh, ID 
ideas that were discussed well, well, give me, uh, during give me the some, yeah, give me some of the during give, during the the effort of uh, the Urban Land Institute. And I was a consultant to AECOM and still am, and so I was an advisor to a number of the people who were working on that uh, project. And one thing that uh, most people who've been involved with post-disaster planning, which I've been involved with since Hurricane Camille in 1969, is that there's different levels of damage. And the areas that have the greatest damage, let's not talk about New Orleans, but in general, the areas that have the greatest damage require the most resources and the most time to come back. And so there's a general, I won't call it a theory, but there's a general consensus among post-disaster planners to work in those areas where the resources can be found as quickly as possible and where the damage is not the greatest because that will take the longest and the most resources not necessarily the areas with the least damage, because those are the areas that can come back naturally with uh, efforts of the private sector. So you, you look for those areas in a community or in a, in a region where um, it's possible to move quickly to uh, reconstruct the, uh, the communities that have been damaged. And it's a question of money, it's a question of manpower, it's a question of city and, and municipal services and state services and federal, federal funding and services. So you try to find those areas that can have the greatest uh, return in the shortest period of time uh, where the damage is not the greatest. Now, the green dot idea got totally misrepresented and actually was poorly presented in the document, because the idea was not to turn these heavily damaged areas into total green areas, but to have a short-term plan to maintain the, uh, uh, the cleanliness and healthfulness and the, uh, to be able to keep those areas uh, so that they're protected for future development when the resources are available. And it was not to turn those areas uh, into conservation areas necessarily, uh, but to have a short-term strategy for uh, treating them as uh, temporarily as uh, park areas, as perhaps uh, places where people can use the land as it, as it is as opposed to not having the resources. You see, now that's not that's exactly not how I uh, understood it. So, so I but guess that, maybe my well, well, hold on a second. So, so my my interpretation or my understanding, uh, I guess, might have been a little uh, off too. But what I thought it was about was what they call, you know, um, sustainable uh, planning. No, that that came. That was a much later interpretation. The original the original intent during the effort of the Urban Land Institute, was to identify areas that could be brought back into normal community that use. That part I knew. Where, where resources yeah. were available and the timing was such that it could be done. And that, by the way, was reflected but, the pattern of redevelopment of Lower Manhattan after 9-11. Right, right. And but it what, worked but, very well there. But what, what was confusing was that it was, it, the green dot areas were interpreted as future conservation areas or natural areas or green space 
as opposed to making them uh, available for future development in such a way that they wouldn't uh, become areas of blight and areas of, of uh, uh, further destruction. Well, and, and but that didn't happen really because in the meantime, I mean, we, we have not had uh, well, I guess there, there have been efforts to maintain it. That's probably not fair to say it hasn't been maintained at all. But, of course, when you drive around there, it, 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 for the most part, very often, it kind of looked pretty neglected because the weeds were always getting higher. But weeds do grow fast. But, I see, I thought but it was, it was temporary, more... The idea was temporary green space that the community could utilize, whether it meant growing gardens or whatever, but making the land suitable for future development as opposed to treating them exclusively as areas for conservation and, and open space. See, I thought it was more about the way, like the lakefront is developed, where between the houses you have those walkways no, that was, and that, that park was, that area. Was one, that was one interpretation, but the original intent was to identify areas within the city that could be easily brought back, where resources were available, where manpower was available, money was available, uh, as opposed to the areas that had the most damage, which would take longer, yeah, no, require more money and more services. I, I got that part. I really do. I, I get that part. But I thought some, at the same time, I thought that it was not about kind of what, what you're describing is that there, there really was uh, the notion that, that you could develop something green in, me, in the meantime. Then that would, I think, be threatening to people who were more worried about getting their homes back, even if the intention was to, to accommodate that. But let me just ask you a question. So do you think that strategy worked? Well, uh, if you look at how long it's taken to redevelop parts of the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, it took a long time for the resources. And the program you spoke about earlier in the show, uh, now after many years after Katrina, is being implemented. So in, in, in reality, what actually happened was those areas that did have the greatest uh, damage and had the least resources available uh, took the longest for redevelopment. Certainly did. So, so I think that's all that was intended uh, in the original plan, but it was presented poorly. It was. That, and they just they dropped it. Yeah, it was too uh, it early. Was, it was yeah. not only presented poorly, but it was not understood. Yeah. Uh, it was really a question of having different strategies for areas of more or less destruction. Well, you know, you know what that music means, T? That music means um, I'm, I'm going off the air. <laughs> We're finished, and I appreciate your calling in, and I'm, I'm sorry it took me so long to get to you. But we've had a great discussion, and, and everybody, I think this is a question of making sure that you're in the mix and you work right. with um, Nora. I, I've got to cut out, and I appreciate you calling, Tan. And, um, this is Crosstown Conversations. This is Gene Nathan, and I will see you and talk with you again next week. But um, I'm going to be watching for Reverend Calhoun's schedule on the community meeting, and we'll get that out to you. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye. Mm-hmm.